1: Welcome back. This is the Big Blue Banter Podcast. I'm Dan Schneier and I'm joined as always by Nick Turchin. As usual on the Big Blue Banter Podcast, we try to aim to break down the All-22 Coaches film, mix that with analytics and a little bit of the eye test. Today, we're going to be breaking down the Giants defensive front, and that means the edge guys, the outside linebackers, the defensive line, interior guys. But at the same time, we're going to actually take a deeper dive into the Giants' offensive scheme under second-year defensive coordinator James Betcher. I felt it's important not only to look at how the Giants plan to, uh, not only to look at who is planning to rush the passer for the Giants to stop the run, but how they plan to do it. Um, From my understanding of the James Betcher defense, the objective is not to have one or two elite edge guys, but instead to have a host of players who can create pressure on any given snap. So I want to take a step backwards first. And assume that, you know, some of our listeners are just like me. And before this podcast, I had an hour-long conversation with Nick. And I learned a lot of things about this Giants defense that I didn't previously know. And I thought I knew it all. So I want to take a step back, assume that not everyone understands this scheme as well as maybe, you know, James Vetcher himself does. And on that note, we're going to break the show into two parts today. 1st we we're going to dive into some of the schematics before eventually breaking down the players and how they can fit into this scheme so I wanted to start it by walking it back with kind of a brief general question. And Nick, I wanted to get your opinion of just the overall objective of James Betcher's defensive scheme.
2: I think it's, a, uh, it's, it's an aggressive amoeba or positionless type defense. Not totally positionless. Nothing is totally positionless. But um, the goal is to combat the spread elements that have come into the NFL. Um, so we're talking about zone blocking scheme to... Uh, basically spreading the field and de- and defending the whole field. How do you defend the whole field? And his view and his view of defending the whole field is using versatile personnel that are taught basically concepts slash flexible assignments within within a defense, and that's not restricted to, hey, this one guy does this one thing and that's all he does, then he's off the field. So it's less substitutions or more importantly, substitutions when he wants to, not because of what the, the offense is doing to, to, the, to the defense.
1: And it's interesting you say that, Nick, because you talk about less substitutions. And we look at the Giants last year, and they were in the nickel sub package on 64% of their snaps. And then if you look a little deeper, they're actually in a sub package of some kind, maybe that be Dime or wherever they go, because they did have some interesting uh, packages that you, you and me talked about, even with seven defensive backs at the time, and they were in a sub package on 84% of their snaps. So, kind of what I wanted to see, Nick, was how does Betcher's scheme overlap with some of the certain themes and changes we've start to see from defensive schemes at the collegiate level, who are trying to kind of combat that, uh, you know, spread the spread elements that have come to NFL that have come to offenses both collegiate and NFL level.
2: Gotcha. Yeah. So we're talking about those, those defenses. We're talking about places like the big 12, where even though there's a lot of points scored, it's kind of what coaches look to as the battleground between, you know, they've got everything in the big 12 from spread air raid to power ball type plays where it's like, it's, 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 it's power ISO ball type, type strategies, um, basically everything there. So um, how the giants look to do that, is although it's maybe different for a different front and formation than, than the teams like to use there, um, it's a lot of sub-package where you have where we say sub-package, a lot of diamond nickel where you have hybrid type uh, second and basically third tier defenders too, um, that can move in and out of the structure however the defensive coordinator sees fit, and just to get down to kind of I guess we should start almost with breaking the fronts down, um, when right. we talk about when we talk about nickel the vast majority of fronts where the Giants were in um, you're talking about what we'll talk, we'll say is four men at the line of scrimmage whether or not they're standing or in a three-point stance two point or three point stance let's just think about where their positions are first before we think about what how we define them so the positions were something like a five tech on the outside a one and a three tech on the inside and then another five tech roughly on the outside now if there's a You know, if there's a six-man line of scrimmage, you're going to talk about one of those guys, those outside guys, being a seven-tech. But that's generally how it is. So whether or not guys want to say it's a four-two-five or the or they only count the two interior down linemen as as down linemen, it's basically a four-man, mostly over, occasionally under front that he would use. The other front that he would use pretty pretty frequently on a on a on a, you know, on, um, on third down was where it get a little more creative, where you have a zero tech and maybe two five techs, or a zero tech um, and then basically a kind of a bunch of guys on one side. Guys, probably people, fans probably remember that, and then not many people on the other, and you kind of vary who you're going, who's going to blitz and and whatnot. But those two fronts are. You would kind of label that they they kind of fall under the four two five family, but I think the way to describe James Betcher's defense is I would stop thinking about the, the the top down structures and and look at what the assignments are from these players on on basically a bottoms up perspective, looking at and starting with the front. And what's really interesting about that,
1: Nick, is when you're talking about four-two-five and some, and like you said, not to exactly, you know, pin him into that corner because it's so different. But when you're talking about these down the, the five technique, for example, you know, Giants fans may immediately think, okay, who's going to compete it for our five technique? We've got Lawrence, we've got R.J. McIntosh, we've got Bolson Pierre. But that's not what we're talking about here. In these sub packages, you're often seeing the edge guys. Let's say the outside. Well, we won't call them outside linebackers here. Whatever you want to call them, but not those interior guys. Playing on the edge of that kind of in both spots, right? You're, is that kind of what we're seeing in these sub packages?
2: That, and, and that's it. And that's this is why this is why Dan makes the big bucks. He, he makes sense of all this stuff. Um, yeah, it's interior. I would call it interior defensive linemen and let's call it exterior defensive linemen or exterior edge players. And yeah, so, and so those edge players are, you're going to be your Kareem Martins to your X-Men to your, um, to Lorenzo Carter and the interior guys are going to be Lawrence. They're going to be Tomlinson and they're going to be BJ Hill among others that, that, that sub in as well. But yeah, that's generally to throw it in broad brushstrokes. That's how it's constructed. And that means it's not
1: necessarily what normal people would think of as kind of like a dime sub package when they go to dime. Correct.
2: Correct. The, 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 a lot of times the big 12 structures use what's called, the, is and, and even actually just to jump, the, the Washington Redskins use this a fair amount, use what's called like a tight front where you have a four tech or a four eye on the outside, quote unquote, as an outside down lineman, a zero tech and another four and four I, And the goal of that is of the goal of that defense. It's a literally takeaway take away inside zone or any really zone blocking scheme that, that the offense wants to employ. The giants don't throw themselves in that structure often, even though they may get to those assignments just via a different front.
1: Right. That makes sense to me, Nick. So let's back this up then a little bit, because assuming that, you know, the Giants are going to be in these sub packages. Well, you look at it like this. The Giants did struggle at times to stop the run after they had traded Damon Harrison at the NFL trade deadline last regular season. Same time, they also flashed towards the end of the season at some points. So my question for you is, the Giants have the personnel in place right now to stay consistent against the run, especially when they're so often in these sub packages.
2: And so that's a great question and something that, You know, I I really liked the the Lawrence pick from a a kind of a wild card, interesting upside perspective, but I kind of did. Lose sight a little bit in the, when he was initially drafted that the Giants were hurting on an interior line perspective against the run last year. Um, I think that you know, at times you saw BJ Hill really because it was his first year. I think you know, his play strength waned at the end of the year. That happens to a lot of guys in their rookie year. I think you saw um, Tomlinson kind of wane a little bit in his gap and being gap sound. He made a lot of great plays athletically, but in terms of actually occupying. Um, occupying interior blocking combinations, which is kind of really important. And why it's important is because you want to keep those those interior linemen from climbing to the second level. Because if you're going to have undersized second tier, you don't want those guys getting to take advantage of size wise from a let's call it a 310 pound you know interior uh, guard going to the second level going against Alec Ogletree, for example. He's 200 what 225 30 pounds. That's what you're trying to to help. So you're trying to avoid. And so I think that overall they have they had a they had a pretty solid line of or rotation of interior d linemen, but adding lawrence is going to be super important because he's maybe not the best occupier just as a as a, to make a bland statement but he's a big guy that's very powerful so he actually has a he's a big threat to get downhill that's going to occupy those uh those interior linemen interesting
1: and i like that and i think that's going to be really interesting to see how he kind of fits there um but from taking it from a different level here, we know the Giants, like I said, like we talked about, they're going to be in sub package a lot. That's kind of where this defense is moving. So from that standpoint, uh, you know, Mark, Mark Schofield did an interesting piece on how the Pats are kind of moving in a similar direction. Now, their scheme is is not the same as the Giants, and Nick made that very clear to me in our, in our, pre, on our talk for this podcast because it was a little bit confusing to me, and I know that might be confusing to other people. But at the same time, from a roster construction standpoint – they might be moving, the teams might be moving in a similar direction. You look at the Pats, who didn't even really consider paying uh, Trey Flowers, who was honestly one of the best edge pass rushers in the NFL last year, and instead they, you know, they're focusing on scheming pressure in different ways, and different sub-packages. And in that same way, the Pats are focusing a lot of their assets in the defensive backfield, both via the draft this year and last year, and some through some of their free agent sign- signings. Now, you look at the Giants and you flip it over to there, and it seems like they're kind of set in a very similar way. They have their three man line. Uh, and we've seen them make very similar decisions, like moving on from their two highest paid edge guys, Jason Pierre Paul and Olivia Vernon in a, in a matter of two off And then obviously Damon Harrison, while at the same time loading up in the secondary, they've used a 2018 third, uh, third round supplemental pick, a first round pick, a fourth round pick. They traded for Joe Peppers, a former first rounder, and they brought in Corey Valentine. Uh, so, my question for you, Nick, would it be: Is it safe to say the Giants are kind of moving in this direction? I know it's not the same, but in this direction on defense. And if so, can you kind of talk about how this construction of defense can, you know, achieve that element of surprise on any given snap that might give the Giants an advantage from a pass rush standpoint?
2: Yeah, and that's a and that's a good way to look at it and a great question. And something that um, I'm not going to lie, as a you know, as a guy who watches tape, it was great to step away from the Giants season and go evaluate something else then come back to this after the Giants have done all of their basically roster moves, right? The rosters are pretty well set for camp. And so now we see from a team-building perspective, I think that's really what Dan's kind of getting at is from a team-building perspective, what do they think? And, yeah, I absolutely think that within what they're looking for, the theme that I see with the guys that they drafted and the guys that they brought in from a free agency, free agency perspective is they brought in high-motor guys that Hot motor is interesting in pass rushers. It's not just effort. It's the ability to continue on and play through contact. That's what I think the big goal for the Giants is this year is to get guys that can play through contact and can basically finish in the third phase of the rush and getting past the 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 blockers in in a, in, a, in a, on a more consistent basis. I think that's what they were missing. I think the Giants had a lot of high motor guys for sure, but not in the pass rushing sense. And I think that's what, to be frank, to get to the one part of the podcast we're going to hit on is Marcus Golden. That's who that Marcus Golden defines that. He's made a career of that, and we'll and we'll jump into that more. So so do they have this ability? Or are they finding guys that are. Basically, I think that what it gets into is they're taking less specialized. They're taking they're taking players that are less specialized in one thing or one or one assignment, and taking guys that do a wider range of, of potential assignments from a wider range of places in the front. That's what they, that's, that's what they're building right now. Now the, the, the only guy who the most restrictive guy actually is, I would say is, is really is, is Oshane is, is the X-Man in terms of him playing one position in college. And he was asked to do one thing. It was pretty straightforward. So he's the guy where it's, it's going to, it's going to, it's going to be a big jump for him, but that's okay. Cause he wasn't asked to do it in college. We'll see if he can do it in the NFL outside of that. All these other players that they've acquired are very, are really pretty versatile all also having high motors. Interesting. And I think that's, if you
1: see that trend, there's obviously a reason for it, Um, as far as the roster construction goes. And Nick, before, you know, before we dive, we've dived into a lot of um, kind of, I wouldn't say I don't want to go, you know, out out of here and say high level, but for me, even really difficult concepts to understand, you know, like I said, we had an hour long conversation even before starting the recording of this, just so I can get an even better base of what, you know, I'm trying to break down here because there are some similarities to what we're seeing. Like, you know, Schofield wrote about it with the Patriots or other people wrote about kind of where this deep word NFL defenses are changing based on what Iowa State's doing, but it's not the same um, as what Betcher's doing. I think Nick's done an excellent job breaking that down. But before we talk about some of the players individually, Nick, I want to walk it back one more time and I want to kind of get, an idea of if the giants are moving in this direction with the sub package defenses, and it's obvious based on last year they're doing it. And you know, a case can be made. They're going to move even further in that direction this year because now they have so much more talent in the secondary. So with that said, what positions and, and it's more of a basic question, but I think it's important to, to kind of establish Nick what positions and what players in the base front seven, you know, come off the field when the giants do go to this nickel sub package. And also when they go to any other sub package,
2: yeah, that's a, that's a that's a good way to say it. Actually, you know, um, chats over at Football Outsiders just today tweeted that in the Football Outsiders almanac, it just occurred to him that he should stop referring to the front seven as the front seven and be the front six. So okay. it was in this front six. it's really interesting, right? Like we just had <laughs> this conversation today. It's funny. Um, yeah, right, right. Anyway, so uh, so who comes off? So one thing that I would say is that from a brushstrokes perspective, for the majority of snaps first through third down, you're going to see two outside edge guys. Like we were, like we talked about in the four man front and two interior guys. Um, I think as we go later in the down, as we get to later downs, you're going to see much more Dexter Lawrence and BJ Hill. Cause BJ Hill actually has, he's a much better pass rusher than I, gave him, than I gave him credit for during the season. Besides just his sacks, he's, he's, he's good. And, um, and I think you're going to see less of Dalvin Tomlinson. Right. Um, and I think that from a I think ultimately where it's gonna go on the outside, you're gonna see more of Lorenzo Carter and Lorenzo Carter, X-Men and Golden. And you're gonna see less of Kareem Martin um and, and those and and those other guys outside. At the second tier, I think, you know, Ogletree is he's one of the best blitzing linebackers in the league. He's a hybrid, so it's like what do you want to call him? linebacker slash safety. Um, I think you're going to see more of him at the second level. There's been reports of, and I haven't gotten a chance to look at his tape yet, and I will for uh, an upcoming podcast, but Mark McLaurin at the second level um, in that kind of linebacker hybrid moneybacker role. Um, so more of those types of players. And then the more traditional guys, I think B.J. Goodson is going to be an earlier down guy, and as he was last year, and he played it very, very well, to be frank. Um, I think he should make this team, and I think he has a spot, um, and that type of thing. So I think that's where you're seeing the, the, the player construction is going to they're, – they're still going to rotate two lines. But I think the third – Well, as you get closer to third down, you're going to see those, those players emerge.
1: And this is so interesting to me because it kind of dives into my opinion, which was the biggest misconception about the Giants 2019 draft class. And that was that they're drafting, you know, you kept reading this, you kept seeing this in all the Gettleman bashing articles or just Giants bashing articles. Why did they draft a two down lineman uh, at 17 overall in Dexter Lawrence? And it never made sense to me. And you even talked about this to me off the podcast. Like if you look at Lawrence's freshman year tape or even his 2017 tape, you don't see a player who needs to be limited to that role. Instead, really, what the Giants drafting Lawrence meant was Tomlinson's going to be more of that, that two-down player at best. And I mean, in this defense, you know, it might not even get to that point when you consider kind of how rarely, you know, I mean, how often the Giants are going to be in that sub-package and how much they're going to have Tomlinson on the field over a guy like Lawrence. Is that, is that correct? in that assumption that really Tomlinson is the one who's going to suffer the most from, I wouldn't say suffer, it's not the right word, but Tomlinson's probably going to play the least out of those three down linemen, Hill, Lawrence, and Tomlinson.
2: Yeah, and yeah, I, I think so. And we're not really speaking out of out of, out of you know out of school here because this is all on the tape, and you can go back to the, his early years with Spags, or his early one single year, right, with Spags. And I recently watched a, had to watch a few of those games, and um, you know he was put down in third down a lot, and he just his his pass rushing acumen is as a larger individual, right. and it's not easy. It's not easy. We're not sitting here saying, oh, it's so simple, right? It's like no, it's very difficult for those guys. It's just, it's not his strength. And, and I think that he has athleticism to make plays in the run, in the run game, but it does not translate uh, to, to, to getting basically past that third stage of getting past a, defa- a, a blocker. Uh, so yeah, I, I, I definitely think that.
1: And on the flip side of that, Nick, we both agree that Lawrence actually has more of a pass rushing prowess than people realize and the potential to get to a spot, you know, to a place in that in that regard that you know he's just, he just just wasn't really given credit for uh, by kind of the early reaction to his drafting. And he really, on another note, Nick, if you look at it before Damon Harrison was traded, he really his snap counts were much much lower than people realized. If you just dig back and if you have access to pro football focus or whatever uh, source gives you the snap counts, I use pro football focus. You'll see, because I looked back at this um, earlier today, Nick, you you really start to see Harrison playing much fewer snaps than you would expect. I think for this reason, maybe, you know, this might be part of it um, where the Giants are moving from a defensive schematic standpoint. But let's move on, Nick. we got to get to the players here. So I want to start with. Player who I'm excited for in this defensive scheme, especially if he can somehow get back to the full health he was at. Um, that's Marcus Golden. So <laughs> the Giants gave Golden plenty of rest during OTAs. I mean, both Betcher, you know, Betcher said we want to we want to manage his reps during OTAs, and to me, that was a telltale sign they have a big role for him. And at the same time, both Betcher and outside linebacker coach Mike Dawson, they made it clear that you know they are counting on big things from Betcher in 2019. So from what you've seen from his tape. Uh, with the Arizona Cardinals uh, can he kind of be that lead dog off the right edge for the Giants
2: lead dog is yeah, it, it, he's an interesting guy he's an interesting guy it's really fun to break him down um, because to take a step back as an evaluator when when we when we when we look at You know, guys coming up, we always kind of set targets for what they would have to do to improve to, you know, to basically for us to boost the grade. And one of them is always like combining more pass rush moves or finding ways to use their hands and become better at combining moves together or finding better counters for for sets, et cetera, et cetera. Usually having to do with pass rush moves. At least that's the way I focus on it. Um, Marcus Golden is a guy that has very, very, very few, if not really zero pass rush moves. And he's made a really good career. He's had a pretty successful career out of it. Um, obviously one big famous year in, what was that, 2016. But, you know, what's really interesting about Golden, when you kind of dig into his background, and I did not know this till we, until I did this research for this podcast, you know, he played linebacker and running back in high school. And he was really good. But he has wow. that type of athletic athleticism to him where in space, he's very, very comfortable. So he's not like a carry win who does not have that background is a different type of tall kind of leaner, more lean athlete. That's, that's learning the end edge position. And by the way, I think his upside, I think their their two upsides are kind of, it's not similar. I think actually win may be a little higher, but the bottom line is that golden is, is more what they want in the sense that within, within his speed rush, which is really his go-to play, he is a very, very disruptive motor. And when I talked about motor reform, this is why this is he was basically why I was talking about it. Um, at the in, at the end of at the end of downs towards the end of downs when when quarterbacks are hitching his he he brings it to a, ne- a next gear consistently in 2016 the whole thing is can he get to that gear now um, getting back to what he was best at or you know getting back to the space theme operating in space looping in et stunts. He was very, very good. And so we mean by looping, again, we have one in any stunt, any two-man stunt, just to break it down simply. And um, one defensive lineman is the driver or the picker, and the other guy is the looper who's going to be moving around. When he moves, his second, third, and fourth strides are very, very good. His get off is not tremendous, but his second, third, and fourth strides, he really gets power, especially from his legs. And he uses his hands pretty well, so when those legs get moving, he can move people, and that's difficult to do because again, he's only six three. He's only six foot three, two hundred sixty pounds. So he's not he's not a very big guy. Um, you know, I think that you're going to see him. You can see him on early and later downs because he does. He is very comfortable in space. He dropped off for Betcher pretty often uh, in those years there in Arizona. Um, I think that you know overall for me, I projected that he is a he's a role player for sure on teams. I'm not sure if he's a starter really at this point in his career, but you know, if guys immediately would say, "Hey, that's what Connor Barwin was last year." I'm going to say this is literally if Connor Barwin had more athleticism, a lot more juice and was on steroids. That's yeah. that's how that's how Marcus Golden is. And and it and he will he will make his presence. No, the whole thing is can he be healthy? And can he get back to that level where, you know, Within the stunts, the twists, and the line games that they play, he's kind of the go-to guy, and and I think he can.
1: Yeah, and that's interesting because, like you said, even if he does is not maybe necessarily this lead elite dog. I really didn't frame that question correctly, Nick, because I'm not I like I said like I said really to begin this podcast. I'm not sure exactly that's what Betcher needs for his defense, um, you know, or for for this specific scheme. And like you said when you talk about the actual scheme fit with Golden, it might be be that that's where he kind of shines because he's such a good fit for what they want to do. And some of his limitations in another defensive scheme aren't as highlighted maybe in this scheme. And that brings me to kind of like the whole deal with Olivier Vernon last year. Like, are the Giants really going to be losing much from Vernon? Because, you know, BFF was decently high on Vernon's 2018 season. I didn't think he was making that much of an impact personally when he came back from that high ankle sprain. And obviously, you know, he's missed... missed, I think, 12 games or I think it was 12 games in the last two seasons or at least played injured in 2017 through a lot of games in addition to playing hurt even during his his 2016 season. So I guess what it will kind of be like is can he be the lead dog in this scheme is kind of more what what I'm saying. And and you kind of came around to that nicely. But kind of transitioning from that, Nick, to somebody who is not going to be a lead dog but might be a surprise, at least we'll find out soon. Can, you know, and it's somebody who's one of the last remaining members, Nick, of the Jerry Reese era, and it's a surprise. We're talking about former fifth-round pick Avery Moss. There hasn't been much about him this offseason, but he is finally over the injuries, and they have plagued his entire Giants career. And now he's had time to kind of learn better scheme, at least uh, in, in the film room. Obviously, he doesn't have that many reps in it. Do you think he can add anything to this Giants defense as kind of a surprise role player?
2: Yeah, this is a, a- – Moss is a great guy, B, or a great – example to me of player reevaluation because I'll be totally honest. I didn't really focus on watching his tape at all in the last two years as being, as covering the giants. Now that's my fault because when you go back to it, you actually see why he's the only guy from Reese still around because he's the closest thing to a hybrid that they had on that team, in my opinion. Um, and so, and I didn't expect that. I didn't expect that. Six Oh three Oh, 271 pounds, six foot three, 271 pounds. People are, you know, I think, he obviously spags is going to want him to be that traditional four three end and to have you know basically moves to beat guys in isolation to beat big tackles in isolation um he is what's interesting about him immediately is 34 and a half inch arms those are long arms and those arms showed um in 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 his, in his previous year's tape with Spags. so for me what i like the best about him is his length his motor and his versatility he was the Really, the only guy in that Spags defense that covered tight ends. A very smart guy on Twitter basically said that uh, the Frisco call is what um, Spags, would, or the Frisco assignment, is what Spags would would refer to that as is when the defensive end on to the strong side would drop off and and and, and guard the tight end and man or, or go to the flattened zone, um, which he did that pretty well. He moves he moves pretty well. His lateral agility is good for a guy that size. Um, you know his weaknesses he it's kind of similar doesn't have a lot of pass rush moves has long arms doesn't really put them together as much doesn't have a ton of counters he's got a fair amount of strength within his arms though which is interesting his push pull uh, when when you jerk the offensive lineman forward or backward in their, in their case and then pull him forward, he actually has a fair amount of strength. And as he got more accustomed to the spags play, about playing more in Spags defense, I think he actually did okay at the end of the 17th season. The biggest improvement you can clearly see from his 2000s tape is the motor slash power. Um, and so I know he was really kind of buried last year, uh, but someone where, for me, I know guys, a lot of guys are saying, hey – He's going to be the next one to be cut, or he's just the last guy to be cut. I think there's a reason he's still around, and I think he's got a good shot of making this roster uh, because because of his length and because of his sneaky versatility. Even though he came from that kind of more rigid four three spags spags defense,
1: interesting. And like you said, you know, like you broke down earlier, kind of just from the schematic standpoint, having these type of guys who can be more versatile on that edge, especially with how much sub packs are playing, is going to be valuable. So keep an eye on Moss, who's kind of been kind of counted out, but. It shouldn't surprise you that he's still on the roster from that reset. But, Nick, another one of these kind of under the radar players, and this was more of an under the radar free agent signing from this offseason, was Olsen Pierre. And during Olsen Pierre's final season with James Betcher in Arizona in 2017, he delivered a surprising number of quarterback pressures on a per snap basis. That's according to pro football focus. In um, your perspective, what can Pierre bring to the Giants in 2019 and where will they, he actually fit in this defensive scheme?
2: Pierre's an interesting guy because he's, uh, well, actually, he's from Linden, New Jersey, so he's a local guy, which is kind of cool. Um, good to see him come back home. Um, he's the, These dimensions and their body touch are really important for this. He's 6'0", foot five, two 293 pounds. So he's kind of too big for, for an edge position, but he's not really as big as most of the other players that play inside, if we want to break it down those two groups from earlier in the podcast. Um, watching his tape... Was has been interesting. He's been a little bit of a journeyman. He found a little bit of success with with Betcher. Um, guys have labeled him, scouts have labeled him as the most traditional two gapping five tech in a base three four front. So what we mean by that is a guy that is playing in the five peck five tech position, but with an outside linebacker outside of him in that rigid three four structure. Right. What I, I don't want to paint him with that brush, but I can absolutely see that because his best his best traits are his functional and play strength. Um, he's he's a he's a occupier. He can take the guy in front of him and move him. Um, you know where I, where I saw him in the run, you know in the, in the run game, he has light feet. He's got some arm length. He's got moderately high motor, but he's not. It's not like he's dominant in one in one way or the other. I'm not sure if he can play inside consistently. I think that he's a he would be a good rotational guy within the, for, for the Giants, if, and that's kind of his upside. I think that he's going to struggle to make a lot of rosters because this five tech, the traditional three, four, five tech, has kind of gone away. Yeah. Now again, Betcher's going to embrace him because he's a defensive line guy and he likes hybrids. But I think the best thing that the biggest thing that he has to show, even as a veteran, is he has to show a better pass rush plan. And he has to find to show something else other than his bull rush. He has a little bit of wiggle. He's got light feet. He's a little bit more athletic than think when you first watch him. And He's one of those guys. Greg Kosal uses this phrase, and it's like you have to watch like ten thousand hours of tape before you actually can kind of like understand what a lot of the things that he says. Um, and I'm not even near that yet. But he talks about the more he, uh, he likes him, he likes some guys, the more he watches them. And that's what I found with Pierre. I just I'm not sure if he's if he's enough to make this. If he's enough to make this team, even if he even being a better guy. Because I think that the Giants can take outside guys and bump them in yeah. versus at inside guys and, and, and yeah. hold on to those inside guys unless if they're dominant. I don't know if he's going to be that dominant guy. Yeah, I mean, you hit it right at nail on the head
1: there, Nick. I mean, we talked this whole podcast about the Giants are in sub-package, sixty four percent of their plays, or I'm sorry, nickel, and then sub-package are an even higher percentage. they were in 84%. So really, where does that leave a player whose best fit is in a traditional base package in the 3-4, the 5-tech, with an outside linebacker over him? I mean, where does that fit? And like you said, we saw times last year where even guys like Lorenzo Carter were lined up on the interior of some sub-packages, but you can't do that same type of thing with Olsen Pierre on the edge, um, uh, or playing kind of like that, that second level. So that'll be interesting to track if these type of guys can make the roster. And that leads me to another guy who I kind of feel like, and you can tell me if I'm wrong, is in a similar position to Pierre, and that's R.J. McIntosh. And after a lost rookie season, there's been a lot of positive buzz on McIntosh coming out of OTAs. He's healthy. More importantly, he's put the weight back on his frame after losing so much, you know, due to that undisclosed ailment last year. But I know there aren't many snaps at the NFL level, but, what can he bring to the Giants in 2018 and, and what, what, what's to say he's not in a similar position to Pierre when it comes to making the roster?
2: Yeah, and that's a good thing. and I think the immediately, immediately the difference for, for fans would be McIntosh at Miami had pr- not proven, how do you say, bona fide, bona fide pass rush moves, where Pierre does not now, to your point. He doesn't have a lot of pro tape and he hasn't shown a lot of that. And his big and McIntosh is to be fair, his biggest weakness was play strength. So where does he fit in? You know, can he, can he, I think he can make the team because I think that he can fit in and, in pass rushing downs on third down as a three tech interior rusher, because I think his moves in small amounts of space are just enough, but you know, uh, to be fair, when I wrote his when I wrote his projection, I kind of just need to see more because I don't feel comfortable saying, "Hey, I think he could be a role player." I think his 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 first goal is to make the team this year, right? Like, and yep. and and I think that there will be a space for him, but it's it's going to be tight. It's going to be tight. He's got he's got to have some disruption um, from that and and replicate that tape that we saw at Miami, um, you know, pretty early on in camp.
1: Yep. And moving on from kind of some fringe guys there, somebody who the Giants are counting on big things from in 2019. And I'm personally counting on very, very big things from, I think he is one of the best chances of, on the entire roster from, a, uh, from a defensive standpoint of breaking out per se, if we're using that term. And we're talking about BJ Hill, who, you know, is entering year two after finishing with the fourth most sacks among all rookies, despite the fact that he's interior alignment, despite the fact that he didn't really start until midway through the season. Um, so I'll put you on the spot. Is a big jump going to come from Hill, Nick?
2: Yeah, you know, I, from a from a from a traditional production standpoint, I could I see that. I think that having the second year um, for him to to gain more strength and to and to hone his craft even further. Because, excuse me, we know in his first year, you see he's, his use of hands is really almost excellent for a guy his size, um, and he has a lot of strength that showed up in pass rush moves, like call it from week eight to week twelve. Um, and so, yeah, I think that, you know, the, the number of sacks was certainly high. And and what what I saw, which is on tape, which is kind of funny, like his push pull move put a lot of guys on the ground, even if it didn't really do anything, if he was in more of a contain rush, kind of as an interior lane contain rush player, So, you know, I think that he's going to be relegated to that. I think that the big, the big thing for him, which is interesting, um, I think at least that he was used as the driver and stunts on third down sub package a lot last year, I think that's the big spot of impact um, uh, for if he can improve. what i'm what I'll be looking for him the most is if his first strike when he's called on that in that role, if he can be more violent at the point, of attack as the driver or picker in those stunts, because it's something that the Giants struggled with last year. And again, everyone has their weaknesses. I think this was kind of one of his. And if he can get bigger, heavier hands, because they're they, they, they're good in terms of moving guys, but not in that first strike, that could really kind of change the game for him as, you know, for, for uh, at, from a burst slash, you know, get off perspective, uh, get off into that first part of the engagement. So that's what I'm kind of looking for him to do. And And something where I think you may see him less in that role, because other guys are going to be better in that role, but I think that's overall better for him as a player. Because you look, you don't want all these guys taking a, a very, very, very high number of snaps, especially like a guy like Hill, where they're going to rely on the early downs a lot. You need him more fresh when, when applicable. So, I think that from the two down, from the line perspective, he may come off maybe a little bit more on third down, but it's not necessarily a knock on him at all. It's, it means he's going to be doing, he's be playing the, the other downs at, at a higher level.
1: Right. I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, moving on kind of to a different player who was more of a disappointment, in my opinion, during his first season, and at least the Giants fans, um, with the team. And that's Kareem Martin. Um, as far as getting to the quarterback, you know, there was some talk that the light bulb had turned on in his last season with the Cardinals in 2017. From that standpoint, as he kind of transitioned away from he was playing more on the interior and then more to the outside, it didn't really happen at least. Uh, from my standpoint, but is his impact more subtle? I know you already tipped off that you see his role kind of decreasing even more in 2019, based on what we've talked about throughout this podcast. But is he? Did, does he make more of a subtle impact than we think, or is he, you know, just a player who you know can set the edge, but that's kind of where his limitations, uh, you know, prevent him from moving any, or I guess where his limitations stop him. I should say.
2: Yeah, yeah, I, I think that's 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 kind of fair, only because he's. He's bigger than the than the edge players, the outside guys, the outside grouping that we talked about before. You know, back at Betcher's, and 17 you know, sixteen, seventeen years, he actually played. Um, he was a, he was at the five tech in their base front a fair right. amount. Um, so he has that ability. He's he's a hybrid that can move him around. But from an actual pass rushing perspective, yeah, he was moved to kind of key. Um, how can I say this most simply? Um, you know, kind of key, like you need key parts in the front where you need him to be the key, the the, the massive pass rusher that can beat a guy one on one. And he didn't beat them one on one as cleanly as as you would want. I mean, that's just really wow. the best way to say it. I think that his his speed to his speed to power rush is pretty solid. I think that his length is certainly there. He had a lot of key pass deflections that guys kind of didn't give him credit for. And I kind of think yeah. that he's he's a little bit better than you realize. But I do see a second, if you want to call him a second line. You know, that that kind of I don't think he's your premier outside rusher. And so at that case, you know, does he need kind of a big year? Yeah, I think he does. And that absolutely can happen. I just I see guys like Carter and X-Man um, and Golden even having a bigger, a bigger impact um, just by their just by their ability, their their second and third gear motors um, and that kind of sixth sense to be able to get to the quarterback, uh, you know, in, in when he's when he's hitching up there.
1: Well, we saved the best for last then, Nick, because you just mentioned him. And obviously a lot of fans want to know about him. And I think he will be a key piece of this defense if this defense is to be successful in 2019. And that's Lorenzo Carter, who, you know, Carter, who ran almost exclusively as the starting left outside linebacker during OTAs. Um, You know, former third round pick, incredible uh, speed for his size I think he ran a 459 if I'm if I'm not mistaken um at 250 pounds uh so he was raw obviously during his rookie season and, and you know there was talk of how he didn't have much of a pass rush plan I know I mentioned this earlier during OTAs Betcher said Carter was finally moving faster um and he's understanding the scheme and more importantly and this is a quote from James Betcher, he had more of a pass rush plan my question for you Nick is How big of a jump can Carter make with his pass rush plan in a full season in the scheme? And does it matter? Is there just going to be other ways for him to get to, to affect the passing game without, you know, without necessarily having all these different pass rush moves and kind of over the next few months, will it become obvious to Giants fans that he has taken this leap forward or is it something
2: we're going to have to wait for? Um, I think for a player like him, it's going to come in stages. And so this was a great question brought to us online and, I think we thought of it right too. like we want to talk about this guy and it gets into kind of interesting conversation about player development and player development is like from the media perspective. I think it's one of the most overlooked aspects of of scouting to following the NFL, right? Like a guy comes in, he needs to develop in these certain areas and then it's very hard to follow up on those areas because it means watching a lot of. You know NFL tape where he's not doing a whole lot, and to see if that player is coming along as they should, or or where should they come along, or do the players even improve at all? Right. Right. I just mentioned I just mentioned Marcus Golden. To be fair, I I would tell everything this to his face. He had he doesn't have a pass rush move. I haven't seen you know his ability to bend is is you know anyway. So, but he's still successful. Doesn't mean he's not going to be successful. So, in Carter's perspective. I started to look at different comps, like player comps that is, like, you know, other guys coming out of Georgia and, and the, the big guy that everyone looked at, I think, is Leonard Floyd, right? Guy goes to Chicago, guy playing in a very, very similar uh, Vic Fangio kind of, you know, as an outside edge rusher, um, you know, how, how, did, how did he progress, over a game, over years, and how did he add to his game? Because from a frame perspective, they're similar. From a trait perspective, they're a little different. We're going to get into that right now, but you know, overall, where did where did he improve? And so, if you go back and, and the cool way to do this, I think, is if you look at multiple years tapes against like opponents, and even if those opponents are not the exact same tackle that they're going up against, you can see them against guys that are somewhat similar, or at least consistency in offensive line coaches, meaning they're going to be they're going to be showing you the same level of sets and basically doing the same type of thing. So I watched um, his game against the Green Bay Packers in 16, 17, and 18. And what you see is three different kind of stages. And the first year in 2016, and it reminded me a little bit of what Betcher said in the quote that Dan read, um, You know, uh, Leonard Floyd's get off is like epic. And his whole thing was just getting up the field as fast as possible. And he's very, very twitchy. He's much twitchier than Carter. And his whole thing was how can I basically create as much disruption and basically dance around this tackle as, as fast as I can. And then you see in 2017, you see, he starts realizing he's got to play. In, he's got to play through contact a little bit more because these tackles are a lot better at this level. So he starts flashing these inside moves. He's not trying to beat guys on the inside with speed. He's actually flashing a spin move. And I just listened to a great Eddie, Eddie O clinic down at an uh, LSU. And you know you have to do that spin move close to the tackle. It's very difficult to do. So you have to play through contact really, really well. It took him a year to get to that point. Where to be fair, you watch a sixteen tape and like someone throws an arm at him and he falls down his ability to play through contact really wasn't there at the NFL level guys are stronger bigger faster and then at seven and then in 18 you see him kick in with play strength and even through injury by the way play strength good use of hands very very efficient movement meaning when he wanted to do something although he did not rack up crazy statistics because god knows there are a lot of playmakers on that defense he was very 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 high impact and was very very versatile Meaning can you drop off into coverage, you know, his movement skills for a guy that's 200 and what, 260 pounds are, are pretty epic. Okay, right. so let's back to Carter. So what I'm looking for for Carter, Carter let's Carter, let's just first off say Carter's different because Carter's arms are about an inch longer. Carter is way less twitchier and Carter's first step is not nearly as good. Carter is very good in straight line speed. His second, third, fourth stride as he moves up the field is very, very good. What you see in his last year's tape when you look at it from this frame of, frame of point or, or this frame of mind, his movement is very inefficient. His arms are kind of flailing all over the place as he's rushing up field in his speed to power rush. That was his really his go-to move with speed to power. Now, speed to power is going to be good for a guy like him because he's got really long arms. So I think that he sets an edge actually better and can do it better than Leonard Floyd over time. And I think that his overall use of hands could be way better because of those long arms. Those long arms have to get stronger. And I think that's where you'll see that play out over the next two years is his play strength will improve. And what you start to see at the end of last year, and even though it's not going to manifest itself in a lot of production, he starts to put together some baby pass type, pass rush type moves with his hands. You see a little bit of a chop rip. You see a two arm long arm where he starts timing it. When the guys time it right in that move, where they're basically they're going speed to power, and as they turn in for power, they take their two hands and they jam them into the upfield shoulder or the or the the, the shoulder that's. Um, Closer to the original line of scrimmage of the tackle. And if you time it that way, the tackle gets up off the ground and you start seeing him do that. And you start seeing these things kind of chip away. So, what I'm looking for is not just some crazy breakout. I don't think it's going to be that way production wise for him, but seeing more of that because he sets an edge really, really well. He's going to, I think he's going to actually, I think he's the, yeah, I think he's the best run defender edge player they have. And, wow. we'll get, and we'll get better, even though he's not size-wise, he's not there yet. And so I'm looking for the play strength to kick in over the next 18 months. I'm looking for the use of hands to get better. They're not going to break out, but that length is going to – I'm looking for more combination of moves where he can play better in tight spaces. You see all the rookies – not all the rookies, but many rookies, the two that I just mentioned, in their early years, they want to get out into space and beat guys with speed. He's going to have to get used to beating guys more in the interior. I'm not talking about with the spin move because he's not as twitchy as Floyd, but something where, you know, you're going to be able to see a push-pull move. You're going to be able to see a, a real clean dip and rip to efficiently get to the quarterback. And what was cool, what I saw last year, was he was he moved around on line of scrimmage. Now, he's predominantly playing from the left side. Um, that's where the X-Man played in college was on the left side. So it's going to be interesting. I think he, as the veteran, is going to have to move move around. I think he absolutely can. Right. And, and I think that's something that, you know, I think that you're going to have a starter this year. And the projection for him is going to depend on how those hand moves go in and how he's able to play in tight spaces. And I think the the ceiling is – you know, is the ceiling as high as Floyd? I, that gets into – that's a little tough because I don't think he's as good an athlete. Um, but in terms of his role for what they need in this defense, he is critical. You absolutely need him because Golden's not going to be around forever, and he's better in coverage than Golden. So and and by the way, the X Man is not didn't really do that a lot in college. So he's got to learn that. He's got to pick that up. So in the meanwhile, you need that guy who's two way. Maybe he's not going to have three crazy pass rush moves, but over time, yeah, I think you're absolutely going to get a a little bit of a force on the end on the on the outside that can move around and, and 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 can do some damage. And it's interesting you mentioned like you know is the ceiling Floyd and some people look at that as like a
1: negative, but I think there's a big misconception with players like Floyd and the impact he makes on that Chicago Bears defense. And, you know, if you just look at the sacks column, you're going to think one thing about Floyd. But if you ask the coaching staff there, you're probably going to learn a whole other thing about the impact he makes. And I think that may be a similar case that, you know, Carter follows with the Giants. Um, But on that note, Nick, let's dive into some of the questions from the listeners on today's show. We'll start with Josh Salberg, who asked, are you seeing any evidence of the Giants embracing analytics more? Um, The recent major investment in the secondary
2: over pass rush gives me hope. Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I didn't realize. I just learned this week, and I don't remember the gentleman's name. But they, the Giants actually do have a director of research, who um, who he you know he basically focuses on the analytical side. I think you see Pat Shermer is yeah, his name. Yeah, gotcha. So they actually do have guys that are employed, and the reason why I say that is a lot of guy a lot of teams don't. Um, Judging from you know, looking for as an outsider looking in, um, I think that Shermer, like like we've said, Shermer focuses on some game management situations with a lot tighter, um, a lot tighter focus on analytics, kind of coming from the Andy Reid tree, or at least the Andy Reid subtree, because Reid's not really excellent at it at all. Um, but you know, I think I think there's a presence there. But this gets into a conversation about what is actually analytics because the chatter that I get from guys in the industry to guys just outside of the industry is that most of most teams have analytical teams, but they kind of don't know what to do with the data. And it's kind of just sitting there and they've got guys in one silo doing one thing. And how much does that translate to another silo Um, for the giants? I, you know, I think that um, on the offensive side, I would probably say it's not as much as other teams Uh, on the defensive side. I would probably say it could be closer, but that's really just a guess. And, and kind of, you know, the giants aren't one of those institutions that, you know, are, are known to really kind of really embrace that and really get after it that way. So I think it is improving how much that does improve or, or how much will they embrace it. I'm not sure, but it's not something where it's, it's a funny landscape. It's, it's one where the way it's been broken out to me is that like roughly a third of the teams focus on and do things kind of that make sense and are very applicable. A third of the teams have guys, but they don't know what to do with them. And the bottom th- or the, the last third uh, don't really have groups at all.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting question, uh, Nick, and thanks for asking it, Josh, especially because I actually took the time to dive into this yesterday. I'm working on an article that I didn't get a chance to publish yesterday. Probably going to publish it in a few, you know, a few, an hour or two after I've we're done recording this podcast, but I actually was surprised to see how much the Giants are in a sense, embracing analytics in ways that people really weren't expecting. And like I mentioned, um, just doing some research. Tyser CM is the guy running the Giants analytical department. And as Nick said, you know, this is even a step up from some teams that don't have anyone doing this. And we don't know the full extent. This guy's never been quoted in an article. There hasn't been a feature on him. I think the Giants are trying to keep it, you know, a little bit under wraps in that sense. But if you look at it from, a few different standpoints, the Giants are embracing analytics when it comes to their roster building process. And we've gone over this already on the podcast, so I don't need to rehash it, but just with the sense of, you know, dumping all those big edge contracts and bringing in, you know, a lot of players in the secondary that I believe the goal eventually is to re sign their own players here. That's what the Giants want to do. They haven't done it recently because their draft process has been so off and because, you know, they just didn't really feel like they that Collins was the where they wanted to make Collins the highest paid play uh, safety in the NFL in their specific defensive scheme. But with the exception of, of that, you know, they really haven't let too many other of their hits uh, from the roster building standpoint through the draft leave via free agency. I mean, they let Richburg and Pugh go last off season, but come on, Richburg was awful in San Francisco after signing his contract. Pew was injured again after signing with the Cardinals. So really there aren't too many examples of that. So if you look at kind of the roster construction, the way they're shifting, going for, you know, for focusing on, on, on secondary over, over, over kind of those edge guys, but also in the sense of their defensive scheme. And that works in hand with, with hiring a guy like James Betcher and with what he's doing from a schematic standpoint. Um, using analytics to kind of shape that as we've talked about in this podcast, but really it also kind of dives into their in-game strategy. And you look at it, and actually an analytical study that was done by uh, Ben Baldwin, who's a, who you know a really interesting follow on Twitter. Um, and what he did was he looked at kind of what he tried to decide who he thought were the most uh, forward-thinking franchises when it came to going for it on fourth down. And the analytics dictate you know that in certain situations where the Giants and any other offenses up. Op- should go for it on fourth down based on the analytics the giants adhered to this more than almost any other team in the nfl in 2018 in Shermer's first season the giants were from this standpoint they went for it on fourth down in the sense uh at you know the fourth most times at, sorry i'm trying to explain this in, in 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 easier terms to understand let's back it up when they should have gone for it on fourth down they went for the fourth most times in the NFL. So they adhered to the analytics more than almost any other team. Like I said, you know, Shermer touched on this in the game against the Falcons, you know, where he where he said, we discussed it internally, the math on it. You increase your chances of winning the game by 50%. If you go for it, um, uh, if you go for it and make it there. And he's talking about, he said, I tried to be aggressive for my guy. Shermer said and he's talking about when the giants were trailing by, um, I believe it was eight points at the time and they scored, or they scored a touchdown to cut to eight. They had the point after attempt. Instead of going to cut it to seven, which traditionally most teams would do, he went for the two-point conversion there. Um, So, you know, he talked about it in in other ways throughout the season. That was not the only example of when he used it in-game. So I think from those three... Buckets, Nick, and and obviously Josh, who asked the question. The Giants are actually embracing it more than people give them credit for. I know there's a lot of things that are said about the Giants. I feel like a lot of things that are said kind of get thrown into this bucket of just like black and white. You know, the Giants are a type of team that doesn't understand analytics just because Dave Gettleman did the imitation of the, of the guy typing on the computer when he was asked about Saquon Barkley. But really, what he was just trying to do there, in my opinion, after rewatching that a few times and obviously watching it at the time. He was really just trying to justify picking Saquon Barkley guys. And, you know, he, he used analytics, but that wasn't that really didn't play a role in that decision-making process, in my opinion at all, um, when it comes to drafting Saquon Barkley. So I think that, you know, it's, it's kind of a fallacy to, to dump them into this bucket of teams that don't use analytics when you really look and break it down, um, as we tried to do there. So moving on to the next question, Jim Henry asks, might not be something you can answer – but does anyone have a pass rush move anymore? I guess he's saying in the NFL, it just seemed that, or maybe with the Giants, it just seemed that Carter and Vernon and anyone else really just try to run right into the tackle or try to run right around them um, and then end up so far out of the play. So what's your standpoint on that, Nick?
2: Well, what's, it's, it's interesting. It's kind of, it's come it's come a couple fold. The league has embraced, the one of the spread elements that the league has absolutely embraced and taken to the ninth level is the quick game, right? So if you're going to, If you have to get to the quarterback within 2.2 seconds, that's when he basically should be getting rid of that ball, if not sooner. You're going to stick to one type of rush, and and that rush is speed to power. So the majority of snaps that you see in the NFL are absolutely speed to power. That's why this this player that's 270 280 pounds, it's fast, it's got burst, but can beat someone really quickly and then finish really strongly because you can't get you can't move the offensive tackle, you can't beat them on the outside that fast. It's going to take you 2.7 seconds to get there if you try to win on you know with five steps up the field or however you want to think of it that way. Um, so I think part of it's that. The other part of it is what we kind of what we kind of broke down in, in that the ice iso- the guys that win in isolation and one on one tend to be four three defensive ends. That is a broad stroke statement that I could get slaughtered for, but I think those are the guys that you see do that more often um except for guys like khalil mack who 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 are are really he really is a hybrid and he really does have all those pass rush moves and can win in isolation often he's a terror but he's a top two player you know at his position so the upper end guys i think have kind of crazy moves and i was listening to an offensive lineman speak or an offensive line coach talking about a player quoting a player but basically it's like if 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 a, if a, if a, if a pass rusher has one really good move you're talking about a career if he has two really good moves you're talking about like a potential pro bowler if he has three really really good moves you're talking about a hall of famer and <laughs> That's kind of. I think that's where where things hierarchically stand up because the players are so good, the tackles are so good in this league. I think that you you know it's very hard to have two very good moves. So can the guy have one? Can they get to one? I think that's where the where the players are trying to you know that's like their first step. And I think you have the Giants have a lot of guys developing in that area. And then they're gonna have a guy like Golden who's won despite not having that. Um, and so I think that's where it's that that's where it's kind of shaken out in terms of if if look if guys were in five and seven step drops. I think you would see, you know, you would see more creativity on the outside.
1: It's interesting. I think that makes sense too, and that's just kind of dives, like you said, into the changing of the NFL on the offensive side of the ball. So, Nick Pat Chamberlain, one of our our followers, who's always engaged, and I, we appreciate the questions asked. In terms of edge, who do you think will step up as the most productive pass rusher opposite Carter?
2: Uh,
1: <laughs> I guess <laughs> the all- are, are are really. I mean, considering we 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 both believe that O'Shane, the X Men, probably going to play mostly on the left side uh, this this season. It would probably be Carter moving over there, right? Or, or yeah, both.
2: and I think I think it's going to be the X Men. I think it's going to take a little bit of time, um, just because I don't think he's going to. I think his path is going to be similar snap wise to um. Uh, Yeah, right, right, where he plays 10 to 15 initially, and then you see things build as the year goes on. Yeah, so I I don't think he's going to kind of burst onto the scene, but he's a guy, and this is what's really interesting, when I just talked about the number of pass rush moves, he's a guy at the college level, which is completely different, but, but at the college level, he's shown two to three different ones with very active hands. The guys that already have moves coming in the league, I just think that is so hands above you're just so far ahead because you know that the guy has the ability to do one thing at a lower level and then move on to another. Um, so I, I think the X Man is going to emerge there, and 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 so whether or not you're talking about, you're probably not talking about this season. You know, it's 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 a it's a it's a, tra- it's a trajectory and it's a trajectory that has to be taken into account that he didn't he hasn't covered a lot of guys in space often. He has the athleticism to do it. He hasn't done it yet, so you're going to see limited snaps because of that. But until you get to that point, I th- that, look, that's why they draft from the third round. They know as well as we do that they need that they need some guy, they need some edge presence, right? But you know, I I, I think that that was a good value pick there, and I think that yeah, you he, of the guys that we just mentioned, um, you know, you're talking about a couple veterans, and you're talking about yeah, you're talking about the X Man. I think the X Man wins in that crowd. Interesting. I,
1: I think I would tend to agree with you on that. Uh, Pat has a second question, and Nick, and it's in terms of the defensive line. What should the Giants do from a schematic or strategy standpoint to generate more interior
2: pressure? Uh, you know, look, I, I mean, what they should do, you know, Betcher's way smarter than me. I think what you're going to see is a lot of the mirrored stuff that they did last year in the twists and stunts that were very, quite frankly, ineffective. And again, to be fair, me, I, myself as an analyst, I did not pick up on that during the season. Um, when you kind of take a step back and you rewatch the tape, you see it again, you go, wow, like, you know, every time they're running a stunt, I mean, there's really, it's almost like there's no one on that side. They need to 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 get better there. Um, I think that they, even guys like Ogletree, when we're talking about interior pressure coming from the second tier, um, I think he's got to be more consistent and better. And I think someone, you know, you're going to want to have someone to emerge. I think one of the biggest things that made the interior pressure weak, if you can believe it or not, is take a step back is, blitzers that they had, whether it was rush four or rush five, you know, Landon Collins was the only effective guy. Every other defensive back last year was very ineffective. Now that's kind of normal amongst the guy, the group that they had, the undrafted free agents and later round picks in the secondary. You need guys that can actually be effective, and it takes a while. It's it's not not easy for for secondary guys to get to that point to basically be able to play through contact well. It's very hard, especially as an undersized guy. Um, So I think that will actually help their interior rush because it's going to draw more – interior one-on-one matchups and look i'm not trying to say dexter lawrence is the sexiest pick on the face of the planet but if he takes a, him against an undersized guard i would take that guy every time <laughs> like right. watch out you do not want to leave him in isolation on that side and so that's what's kind of interesting and and that's what's interesting about lawrence being there is present
1: yeah i mean if you ask me Nick, let answer your question pat as well I think it's just going to come from players winning out, and that's Lawrence and B.J. Hill, the one am excited for um, when it comes to that standpoint, just winning on, on, on the interior. Um, Kevin Boylard, one of my good buddies from 24-7 Sports, asks, um, how and it's a little bit of a curveball here, uh, Nick, so get ready for it. How often will, will the Giants use running backs not name Saquon Barkley?
2: <laughs> I think uh I think yeah they they love using him they love giving him as many touches as possible um I think they're going to continue that way until someone else emerges I do think RB3 is very important but until they actually limit his quote unquote touches or snaps and kind of split it evenly between receptions like I think they quote unquote should and I'm just an idiot with wifi um you know I think they're going to keep on doing and they're going to keep on feeding the beast and and you're going to see I do think that that couple, that a couple of the couple of guys they brought on this year have a better shot of seeing more touches Um, but until it does, you know, I'm, I'm in the bank that they're going to, they're going to feed the beast.
1: Yeah. I mean, for me here, Kevin, the way I see it is this, I think the Giants actually have more talent behind Barkley than people realize. And that, you know, then it's hard to realize that because like Nick said, they fed the beast a lot last year, but if you look and, and, and with that said with the talent, I do believe in, I'm a, I'm a big Paul Perkins fan. I will, I will die on that hill. I'm standing by it. I will die on that hill. I'm really expecting him to make this roster. Um, Obviously the Giants see something in Rod Smith and you know he even got some first and second team snaps during OTAs, as did Perkins, by the way. No one really talked about that. He got a couple first team reps. Wayne Gallman, same thing. But at the same time, you look at Pat Shimmer's history, and it's not just last year with the Giants, it's also the year before with Dalvin Cook. He is a one back guy. I mean, he tried to say, you know, when he came out of Minnesota, you need multiple backs. And he said that before the draft, before the Giants drafted Barkley. I thought, I I viewed that as just a smokescreen, something, you know, trying not to give away they were going to go Barkley at that point. It was late in the process of that pre-draft 2018 period. But based on his history, over at least especially over the last two seasons, it doesn't seem likely he's going to come off the field. I mean, he even made mention earlier in OTAs this this offseason. Sherman made a little comment that kind of got brushed over about how he might even have a bigger workload. This offense is now going to run through Barkley. Beckham's gone. This is a, going to be a scheme that goes through Barkley. So, you know, just in the sense that the Cowboys rarely take Ezekiel Elliott off the field, I don't think the Giants are going to take Barkley off the field very often. Uh, Bobby Skinner uh, asks, what's a reasonable expectation for Lorenzo Carter? I guess he's asking based on stats because he says his college numbers were never, never well. And so I just don't know what to expect for you to do. I want to start before you jump in here, Nick, and say from an actual pressure per snap standpoint, Carter was actually super effective at the collegiate level at Georgia as according to pro football folks, of course, at least. I mean, uh, but they're the only ones I know who do the pressure per snap, uh, you know, metric. And it's just that at Georgia, he actually wasn't used that often as a pass rusher so he did get a lot of pressure to snap obviously as bobby mentions, his college numbers and you just look at the sacks didn't wow but you know as i like to talk about and i'll mention it anytime we ever talk about pass rush nick i i think you should just throw the sack, sack statistic out it obviously has a big meaning but we put so much me- but i'd rather throw it out nick because it gets way too much meaning and to the point where it's overused and it becomes in my opinion uh not in the good measure of 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 a pass rusher's um, effectiveness. I, I go by pressures. I go by quarterback hurries, quarterback hits, even batted passes at the line of scrimmage. There's so many more. There's so many other ways you can impact the passing game as a pass rusher than just purely the sack statistics. So, I guess from your perspective, Nick, what is your reasonable expectation for Carter um, overall for year two?
2: Yeah, and from a trade perspective, we went over that on um, the previous and the previous part of the podcast. You know, from a statistical perspective, again for the traditional, I would say it's going to kind of look the same. Um, I think you got an upside looking at kind of like Floyd where you're at a four to six sack year range. Guys are going to look at that and scoff. And I'm going to go to just echo what Dan said. It's like, look, you know, there's a lot of things that go into why sacks occur and um, he's going to play a pivotal role and he's playing a pivotal role because you, you actually need a bona fide guy or you want a bona fide guy that can drop into coverage. And he's very good at that. You know, very good at that. And so is Marcus Golden. So you're going to have two guys now that can do that like more than pretty well. Um, and that's, that's important. And, you know, to echo what Dan said too, like, you know, if you're the driver in a stunt and you create the space for the looper to get the sack, like you're not on the stat but the coaches give you plus grades when you're grading the, the you're your grade the tape after the, after the game. So, you know, all that type of stuff, it's just kind of, you know, I would say for the, for the, for the traditional stats, it's going to, it's going to kind of echo the same and you're going to look for, for traits to kind of improve. And that's going to determine his overall ceiling in the next two to three years.
1: Yep. I think that's fair. And then kind of building off of that, Peter Esposito asks, sticking with Carter, do you think a more streamlined role for him will lead to more production as far as the passers go? And he mentions that he wore many hats in college. um, So kind of, you know, will a more streamlined role help him at least with the giants?
2: You know, I, I just, I don't, we haven't seen the giants do that or take on that kind of role where you're going to bring on one guy specifically to do one thing. Um, you know, the other side of this, too, is the way practices are structured right now. You know, a lot of the individual stuff at both the college football and the NFL level are done by players after the fact. So a lot of getting of learning these extra moves of of learning their craft, learning and holding their craft comes from their own time, because just quite frankly, going to a lot of these practices, there are a lot of most of them are up tempo. There's going to be for some coaches. In the NFL is a huge scheme, focus, compact, you know, uh, element to the defensive line perspective, you know, you're, it's just, it kind of, it all kind of depends on each individual circumstance. So to answer the question, I don't think that the streamline would necessarily make mean that he would become better or honing, you know, two to three moves per se, because it's not a traditional four, three defense. Um, I think that you had a guy like that, in OV uh, last year, who, you know, does have a bona fide two to four moves that he uses mostly in the speed to power kind of area where he's actually pretty athletic there but it doesn't necessarily that didn't necessarily lead to production in the past I do think that the Giants are scarred a little bit by that because there were very big expectations for him and you know I think he played played pretty well and overall getting penetration and and being disruptive but it's not what it's not what his contract kind of kind of you know what the hopes were for his contract so I think that they're not I, I think that the that's not how they're going to go with him. It's going to be kind of more of the same and developing within that same role, which fits with what he did in, in college as well.
1: Yep. I think that's I think that's spot on as well, Nick. Um, one final question before we sign off here is from Adam Johnson and it's another one kind of off topic from the podcast, but like I said, we welcome that any question goes on this podcast and it says, fellas, how, how do you think this upgraded O-line can be? Do you think they can be a top 10 offensive line in the NFL? If so, with an upgraded line to an improved offense uh, without Odell, how off, how good can the offense actually be?
2: Yeah. You know, Hey, you know, in terms of being a top 10, like I keep on going back to this example in my head, like the Eagles in 2016 through two thousand seventeen went from like a good veteran offensive line to a top five offensive line in the NFL to then one last year that couldn't deal with stunts to save their life. So where are they middle, you know, with injuries and whatnot and everything. So were they middle of the pack? You know, I think that, the, so much of the performance is 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 based upon a lot of factors that are not necessarily, you know, that are subjective, and that I think that the the Giants and, and any team for that matter can be a top can be a top unit besides like the bottom third. And I think the Giants made a lot of key improvements, right. and I think that just to answer really quickly, I think that it all. And I think Dan, I'm not going to jump in front of Dan. But I think he feels kind of the same way. It, it I think even last year and especially this year it comes down to the play of the quarterback in terms of how that of of where their ceiling as a unit goes. Um, and that's just kind of the way – that's just the nature of the position, I think, of, across the board in the NFL.
1: Yeah, I mean, Nick, Nick just said, you know, not to not to speak for Dan, but he's spot on. I mean, I mean we've gotten over this before, so it shouldn't be – come as no surprise to me uh, as far as the offense – in both regards, as far as the offensive line goes, I agree with Nick. Like, it's you just brought up a great point. I didn't hear that one yet, but you really do look at that progression of that Eagles O-line. It is interesting to see, like, how can an offensive line be so dominant and then get to a point where they were at times during the 2018 season now? Ed and Kevin Zeitler, I think, was the biggest offseason acquisition the Giants made. I actually think nobody talks about offensive linemen like this, but to me, it was one of the best off- offseason acquisitions by any team. I know there's different varying degrees of what you think uh, would qualify, what people may think would qualify as the best a best offseason move, but I thought Vernon was a, was a bad contract, guys. I mean, let's be honest. Maybe when he's healthy at times, he's awesome, but the guy's been injured in three straight seasons. They dumped that contract and brought back Kevin Zeitler, a guy who's never injured. He, played, he started 91 of 92 games since entering the NFL, and last year he was the number one ranked uh, pass blocker court in Pro Football Focus. I know people have their own opinion of where they rank, but, you know, fifth best overall guard and, and according to most people outside of Pro Football Focus, you know, analysts I've read, guys who break down a line film, different ways to interpret offensive line play. They all view Zeitler as a top five, top six, at worst top ten offensive guard. So you add that to the mix, you add Remmers, who is a Definite upgrade over Chad Wheeler. I'm sorry to say, it does remember, it really doesn't have to be that good to be an upgrade over Wheeler. You guys have heard our opinion of Wheeler. Um, and, and in addition to that, it was pro football focuses. I think he was the third or fourth worst offensive tackle in the NFL, even ranked behind Eric Flowers for that matter. Um, he had those two guys. Hopefully, Jalapeno's an upgrade. At worst, you get Pulley back in there who you know was decent down the stretch for the Giants. And then obviously you get the progression of Will Hernandez in year two, and hopefully a healthier Nate soldier who played through a few injuries that he didn't, you know, publicize during his 2018 season. So you add that you have the makings of an offensive line. Like Nick says, obviously subjective, obviously there's a ton of factors that are coming to play, but they have the potential to be that. And then as you turn to the next point, as Nick mentioned, it always goes back to the quarterback play for me. And you know, this offense is going to be held back or pushed forward by the quarterback play. And I think, at this point, most of us you know, can come to an agreement on that. But on that note, guys, that is the end of today's show. Obviously, today's was focused deeply on the defensive line, the defensive front, the pass rush, and more of the schematic uh, of, you know overall briefing of the Giants throughout the rest of the offseason over the next four or five weeks until training camp gets back underway. We're going to try to do these type of podcasts. we we'll probably break down the secondary in depth. We'll probably break down the wide receiver corps in depth and kind of move forward in that direction. If you guys do enjoy the podcast, the only thing I ask for you is help us grow this thing. Um, do us a favor and download the podcast on iTunes. If you use, if you have an Apple phone, that's where it really helps us the most. If you download, subscribe, and then rate us there, we're nearing 100 ratings there, which is awesome. We've only been around for, for a year now. And not to mention, in addition to nearing 100 ratings, last, uh, last episode, the episode featuring Daniel Jones. And I knew this kind of would be this way. But I am happy to see it play out anyway, guys, and that's thanks to you guys. It was our most downloaded and our most listened to podcast by far, not even close. Um, nothing can, nothing has topped that that we've done since, including kind of the All-22 Breakdowns games. And so that's awesome to see, guys. I really appreciate all the support you guys have shown us on Twitter uh, and in the ratings and things like that. So, again, if you want to follow us on Twitter and follow up on the conversation and even throw some ideas out of what you want to hear in this dead zone before training camp, Let us know. You can find uh, Nick on on Twitter at Tmanic21. That's T-M-A-N-I-C-21. You can find me on Twitter at Dan Schneier NFL, D-A-N-S-E-H-N-E-I-E-R NFL. Um, And on that note, guys, thanks again for tuning in, and we'll talk to you soon.